0: Welcome to the Engaged Midwife Podcast. This is Kara. And this is Missy. And today we're going to talk a little bit
1: about postpartum hemorrhage. Yeah, postpartum hemorrhage is a scary thing when it happens in midwifery practice.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of the scariest things and something that we want to be prepared for in every single
1: birth. Yeah. And so um, the guidelines have changed some.
0: Yeah. Back in 2017, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists released a updated clinical management guideline for postpartum hemorrhage. And there they kind of redefined the traditional things that we thought of for
1: hemorrhage at vaginal birth and hemorrhage at cesarean section. So our old definitions were 500. At vaginal delivery and a thousand at cesarean. Right. So, what's the new guideline say? So, the new guideline says that
0: we should call it postpartum hemorrhage whenever there is a thousand milliliter blood loss at vaginal birth or cesarean section. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't make, you know, pay close attention when someone has reached 500 at a vaginal birth, but the definition being more a thousand regardless of delivery type. And or any signs of hypovolemia.
1: Right. And that that makes sense too, because patients can be ones who don't lose significant amounts of blood, but still look hypovolemic.
0: They can, although we have to really caution that most of our patients are young and healthy. And when they show signs of hypovolemia, it's
1: often a very late sign. They've had a pretty significant blood loss at that point. And then, um, so what... What, when we're thinking about hemorrhage, what kinds of things are we thinking about for diagnosis or differentials?
0: Well, I, are you talking like how, what would be some of the causes thinking of like, you know?
1: Yeah. Let's start with risk factors.
0: Okay. Um, so when we think about risk, um, one, we should know that most hemorrhage is kind of unpredictable, but I always think of that classic, like over, over distended, tired uterus, Um, especially when we're talking about that immediate postpartum hemorrhage. So someone that's had a lot of use of, um, exogenous, um, oxytocin, or they've had a, you know, polyhydramnios or multiples, just a super tired if they have fibroids. So it's those things that
1: don't allow the uterus to clamp down really nice and tight. And when you said tired, I just think of like, how much Pitocin have we given somebody in labor?
0: Right, right. And did they also come in, like, has it been a two-day induction because they had cervical ripening and then they had oxytocin for 24 hours or something like that. So also infected uteruses don't contract as well. So they're a tired and kind of sick uterus. So those are the things that I classically think of. Or are there things that you think we've missed on
1: that? No, I mean, I think that that's, those pretty much cover it. And I think when you're in a clinical situation with a patient who's in labor, you're thinking about those things throughout the labor process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you want to be prepared at the time of delivery.
0: You don't want to have to respond when something bad happens. You want to already have your tools in place.
1: Yes. And I need to make a side note to remind us to go back to response because there have been some really awesome changes in terms of how we manage postpartum hemorrhage as well. Yes, Absolutely. So when we're thinking about postpartum hemorrhage and I guess prevention, um, when we're talking about patients who are bleeding, there's a really great mnemonic that goes along with that. And that's the four T's, right? Yes. And that's tone, trauma, tissue, and thrombin. And so let's spend some time talking about like each of those. Yes. So I say to students all the time, atony. The yes. answer is always acne It is. Just like we always say in like all these different health conditions, the first test that
0: you're gonna do is a pregnancy test. Whenever we're talking about hemorrhage, the cause is so often atne. Like the answer is acne Yes. Yeah. So
1: um, the most common cause of, you know, early postpartum hemorrhage is atne. That's just put it in your head and don't ever forget it. Right. But, um, what are, when we thought, let's talk about, um, tone first, which is acne. So we talked about some of the things that you just, we, like, we talked about an over descended uterus. We talked about fibroids. We did not talk about uterine inversion because it's so rare.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Knock on wood. I've never seen a uterine inversion, but it is something that we have to have on our, you know,
1: emergency management list. Absolutely. So an inversion can be caused by just too much traction on a cord. Um, you know, when we're doing active management, it can also be caused by short cord. Right. Um, so a baby that maybe hasn't been in the uterus moving a ton and just has a super short cord. Also, um, babies who have trisomy 21 often have short cord.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: because they have decreased tone. Yes. So they aren't moving around a lot in the uterus. So again, that's just an, a reason you may have short cord. That makes sense. Um, also, depending on where the plac- is implanted, right? So. so if it was
0: implanted up at the fundus, think of even combining that with a short cord, it's just going to put more tension
1: on that cord as, as the kiddo delivers. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So tone, then we, we sort of covered, um, lots of use of oxytocin or pitocin, um, grant multi-parity, right? They've right. had lots of babies. Um, we talked about over and polyhydramnios and macrosomia, but we didn't talk about choreo. Well, I said infected, just meaning that it doesn't contract very well. But yes, choreo definitely can
0: make it not want to clamp down. A hot uterus doesn't really want to do anything. No, no, it feels sick. And that makes sense. I think the other thing we didn't mention here is anesthesia. So if someone had general anesthesia for a C-section, they're just everything's relaxed. I mean, if anything, they're given a paralytic, right? And so um, that can also increase our risk of hemorrhage. So let's move on to the second of these, which is trauma. Right. So I classically think of any of our perineal or vaginal lacerations, a
1: cervical, um, laceration could be a uterine rupture. Yeah. Which again, not super common, right. but happens. thankfully. Um, but some of this trauma can be caused just from a normal vaginal birth. Yes. Particularly
0: if it was a really fast birth, a precipitous birth, you can get more tissue trauma. And so you would want to make sure you do a really good evaluation. Um, any of our operative vaginal deliveries. So forceps or vacuum or something could cause more lacerations, but yeah, they definitely can occur. And some of them can bleed quite significantly.
1: Also, when you've been pushing for a long time with a patient, when there's a lot of swelling or tissue um, edema, that can also be pretty friable and can tear pretty easy.
0: Well, I don't know about you, Missy, but I feel like we've had, I've had patients that as they're pushing for a long time, they just have a lot of bleeding too. So maybe they're just oozing and bleeding over time. And we have to consider that amount of blood loss in combination with the right after delivery. Exactly. Yeah. So
1: the next T we have here
0: is tissue. Right. So mostly thinking about abnormal placenta. Um, so did it implant typically in the fundus? Did it implant just in the endometrium? You know, like are we thinking about previa? Are we thinking about accreta? What are some of the different things that could cause increased bleeding? And some of that has to do if it's implanted down in the lower uterine segment that doesn't clamp down as well.
1: Yeah, and just retained pieces, like right. retained products, which retained products have a lot to do with tone. Yes. So they're connected. Yes. Um, So, you know, is there an extra lobe? I say all the time, like, my nurses think I'm weird because I just do a really thorough exploration of every single placenta that I deliver. Yeah. And they're like, what are you looking for? I was like, well, first off, I'm looking to make sure it's all here.
0: Right. And I was taught that as a student. Like, I also investigate every single placenta. So.
1: Yeah. And I also find all these odd cord abnormalities. Um, <sighs> everybody who knows me knows I have pictures of funky placentas on my phone. So I'm always looking um, because I want to know, like, was there a marginal insertion? Was there something that we might've missed on an ultrasound? Was there a you know, I caught a really crazy velamentous insertion a few years mm-hmm. back. And, um, but you just want to make sure, like, when you're looking at your placenta, is it really truly all there? Right. Or was there a lobe someplace that maybe you don't see or didn't see and there's a hole?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you and I are kind of science geeks and love the placenta and just, it's amazing. But everything that you've mentioned about making sure the whole thing is there, all the pieces are there, is really, really important.
1: Right. So retain pl- placenta. Will cause atony, which then again causes right. hemorrhage. Exactly. So let's talk a, lit, a a bit about thrombin. That's the last of the T's.
0: Yeah. So anything that we would think about causing abnormal coagulation, um, we could be thinking about. You know, is it an inherited clotting factor like von Willebrand's? You know, ideally we would know that ahead of time. But in theory, that could be one of those um, issues if if we have preeclampsia. We know that preeclampsia has some bleeding abnormalities and so forth. It's one of the things that we're looking for to make sure that we're not in HELP syndrome or um, similar. So those could all be abnormalities of coagulation, but then some of them, are a little bit more rare, thankfully, like an amniotic fluid embolism. <laughs> um, you know, if we had excess IV fluid replacement, that can throw off your clotting
1: factors. Yeah, like overhydrating somebody, like yes. watering down their blood supply.
0: Exactly. And then, you know, some of our patients come into birth and delivery on anti- being anticoagulated. And so if that was excessive, then you could get into a,
1: a thrombin issue. So there are risk assessment tools um, when we talk about postpartum hemorrhage. And so can let's talk about the extremes. Let's talk about a low risk patient. Yeah. And then a high risk patient. I
0: think of like your low risk as that like classic um singleton. Vertex presentation hasn't had too many deliveries, so like less than four deliveries. They don't have any scars on their uterus, um, and they've never had a postpartum hemorrhage
1: before. Yeah, and that's the majority of our patients, right? Overwhelming majority of our midwife patients. So then, what puts people in a high risk category for postpartum hemorrhage?
0: So some of those things that we've classically talked about: they have a scarred uterus, and they have, and they have a known identified. Um, abnormal placenta like previa, accreta, increta, so forth. Um, If they come into the pregnancy, quite anemic um, with like a hematocrit less than 30, if they have a known coagulation defect, or they themselves have had a history of postpartum hemorrhage that can place them at pretty
1: high risk. I also think when patients come into labor and they look sick, Yes, absolutely. Like, I think, what are the possible things that are going to happen here?
0: And sometimes you can't always put your
1: finger on it. You just know they look off. And I would definitely listen to that intuition. So as we're talking about some of these things, let's talk about our clinical um, considerations and and kind of how we would manage um, some of these um, abnormalities. So we know that we are going to use um, oxytocin first. It is the recommendation. It is
0: the first line medication in high resource countries and low resource countries. That
1: pitocin is our number one. So those uterotonic agents are always going to be first line because most hemorrhages caused by atony. Exactly. Um. So then, what? What? So we talk about pitocin is first. Yes. We also. What's interesting is even in underdeveloped countries, pitocin is a really cheap, cheap, easy to administer.
0: You can give it IM. You can give it IV. Like. You know, in even surgical situations, you can administer it straight into the uterus. Um, there's different ways
1: that you can administer it. So, and then the traditional other ones that we have used are things like methargen and hemabate.
0: Yes. And, and I certainly think methergine is probably cheaper than hemabate, um, but it does have some contraindications to the use of methergine.
1: Right. Like we can't give it to our patients who are preeclampsic. Right. right. And an right. increased risk of bleeding. Right. So that idea of, you know, we talked about hypertension and preeclampsia as one of the things that goes along with a risk factor for hemorrhage. Yes. But then it takes away a category of drugs that we can't use. Right. So if you had the situation where you had
0: already used your oxytocin and you have contraindications to methergine, would you go to hemabate
1: next? Uh, I would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but... Important to say because I think we hear this um, from students and midwives across the country is it just depends on what we have, right?
0: Absolutely. You have to know your setting. You have to know what's available to you. You need to know how close your collaborator is in those sorts of situations, but what types of medications are readily available?
1: Do they have to be refrigerated? Right. How do you administer? And when we go back to that hemabate conversation, you just asked me about hemabate, like again, contraindications, you can't give it to patients who have asthma. Exactly. Um, we also, there are some also relative contraindications for people who are hypertensive, um, as well as have any sort of, um, pulmonary or hepatic or cardiac disease.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, something that, actually is used pretty routinely where I am, but is not considered in those traditional first line is miso. And we administer it rectally, but you can give it orally. You can give it sublingual. There's different options available. The great thing about miso is that it doesn't have to be refrigerated. It's again, dirt cheap (laughs) Um, and pretty easily Administered. The thing to know about all of those medications is that they have really similar adverse effects like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. I will definitely say highlight the diarrhea on the HEMA base, um having seen some pretty significant cases of that.
1: So the one thing that we haven't talked about is the use of TXA. Right. And there's a big trial that just came out, the woman trial in 2017. I think it partners really nicely with this new practice guideline that we have from yes. ACOG. Yes. But the woman trial basically had recruited about 20,000 women um, and and randomized them, right? Uh, in women that hemorrhage, had hemorrhage. Women who had hemorrhage, yes. right. And, um, and the main intervention that they used was one gram of TXA IV. Right. And so what the woman trial really says is that it will decrease morbidity and mortality in women who are bleeding. Yes. Um, but... It doesn't go on to say that that should be routinely used, right? I think they
0: go on to say it should have more research around it, um, but it can definitely reduce morbidity and mortality, and that I do see it being incorporated into
1: a lot of hemorrhage protocols and being used more widely. So that's something that midwives should be thinking: like, do we have um, TXA available IV? Yes,
0: and, you know, what I see it being used for is not necessarily the acute hemorrhage right now. We're using all of those other medications we just talked about. We're using the different methods available for assessing where the bleeding is coming from, but we might give TXA during the current hemorrhage, hoping that we prevent
1: further hemorrhage later down the road. Yeah, and um, the other sort of side note about the woman trial is um, this is not looking at highly developed countries. Right, right. So this is a large proportion of pregnant women in Asia and Africa, Um, and it does go on to talk about that a lot of the reasons that women were hemorrhaging or died of hemorrhage was related to lack of blood products. Right. Which in community access hospitals, birth centers, et cetera. Exactly. That's what I was just thinking is
0: that not all of our facilities and birthing locations in the U.S. would be considered
1: high resource. Right, exactly. And, you know, um, there is some information about how, what proportion of birth happens in critical um, access hospitals where a massive transfusion, you know, protocol may be in place, but you know, blood products are going to be more limited. And we know a lot of our midwife colleagues are delivering in in, in home situations, in birth center situations where there isn't a blood bank.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, actually I just got an alert in my email this morning. I practice at a huge academic institution and it was saying our community blood banks are low on blood. And so even in a big metropolitan area where I'm at a really huge hospital facility with many, many resources blood is we only have
1: so much of it and we depend on our communities to donate as well. And the other piece of blood is even with a massive transfusion protocol, you know, we worry about how many units we're replacing with and, you know, what the end, um, sort of what the result is on organs and body systems, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what we didn't talk about, we sort of were bad midwives. We skipped right over active versus, um, delayed, you know, like, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Physiologic management of the placenta. Yeah. So let's go back.
0: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So definitely we know that in low resource settings and the World Health Organization puts out a lot of guidelines about this, they really do recommend active management of the third stage.
1: Yeah, especially if people are at high risk for hemorrhage.
0: Yes, yes, and so Missy, I know this is something that you love to talk about. Um, active management. What's included in that active management of third stage?
1: So when you think about active management, you're thinking about actively trying to facilitate delivery of the placenta. So that means that we're, you know, looking at things like uterine routine uterine massage controlled cord traction. We're giving uterotonics sometimes right at the anterior shoulder. Right. But that is definitely part of an active management. Um, And so we're really facilitating getting out that placenta as quickly as possible so that uterus can clamp down and, you know, potentially decrease sleep. And
0: true active management includes all of those things. Yes. But we know that midwives sometimes do portions of this, um, sometimes combine it with like yes. expectant management.
1: Yes. So the one thing that sort of straddles the line between physiologic management and active management is delayed cord clamping. Yes. So delayed cord clamping, um, you know, we we um, birth babies, we put them up on mom's chest um, and we we generally wait for the cord to stop pulsating before we clamp and cut. Um, it also facilitates some transfer of all of those extra good things to the baby, but generally cords stop pulsating pretty quickly. Um, now in very extreme situations, I have seen, um, placentas be delivered, um, still intact to the baby, which is amazing. Um, but in general, we wait for that cessation of that pulsation so that we can then cut the cord
0: yeah and when i see research studies that talk about delayed they're usually talking about a minute or greater and um that fits with midwifery management i
1: find right and oftentimes you're doing other things in that minute anyway absolutely i'm thinking like baby out, you're taking a big breath because the shoulders are out. You're putting the baby up on the mom's chest. You're, you know, helping with suction, you're warm, drying, stimulating. You're like working through your first parts of your NRP guidelines, right? Right. So that minute goes quick. Um, and by the time, you know, you've taken a breath and and everybody's, you know, done their initial celebration, you're, um, at a minute. And if you feel that cord, in a, a high percentage of those patients, it's already going to have stopped pulsating. Agreed. So by the time you get to the place where you're ready to cut the cord, you're already at a delayed state. Right, right. So I do remember, though, in midwifery school being very um, just like, oh, my gosh, I've got to hold the baby, clamp the cord, do all the things while I'm holding the baby. And then I thought, like, gosh, it doesn't have to be this way. No, I, I actually don't know what to do if I was going to try to hold the baby. Like it automatically goes goes right up to mom. Yeah. I have the funniest story that so fits this, but on, on my very first delivery in midwifery school, because you know, you don't see everything. Yeah. You literally see the perineum on your first delivery. You don't know that there are people in the room. You don't know that there's a mom actually pushing a baby out. It literally is like tunnel vision on a perineum. So I caught my first baby Um, not the way I deliver now, but like stirrups, like bed broken down, like all the things. Right. And I'm holding this baby and my preceptor sounds like the teacher from Charlie Brown like this. And I was like, I looking at her, just staring at her dumbfounded. And then the next time I heard and I was like, hold on, maybe she's trying to tell me something. I looked at her again and she's like, Missy, you need to cut the cord. And I was like, Oh Yeah. Like, I have a baby. I need to cut a cord. Like, silly. The silliest things. But funny um, for students who are listening and you're delivering babies – that perineum space gets bigger like yeah
0: it works out right like by the time you finish integration you know that there's people in the room you're actually conversing with them all you're managing all of it you're anticipating things that might
1: happen you're talking to the nurse yeah you're like oh yeah there's a whole room full of things happening here and it's not just the perineum and it gets even better over time after your first year of practice it's amazing it's amazing (laughs) Um, but so the other piece of then, so when we talk about physiologic management, so we talked about active management yes. and we said delayed cord clamping kind of falls between the two. But when we talk about physiologic management, which I also love to do with my patients is, um, delayed cord clamping, of course, sure. um, but not putting any pressure on the cord, right? Just leaving your little, um, pair of on the end of the cord, um, not doing uterine massage, not running pit or giving pit I am. So no medications, no uterine massage, no controlled cord traction. So placentas will come on their own. Yeah,
0: patience is a virtue. Just like so many different times in midwifery, patience is a tool in our toolbox. And we can wait 30 minutes or so,
1: right? Uh, We said this in another episode, like respect the lull. When you're in labor, like there's a lull and you can wait. And it's fine.
0: I find the hardest time that I have with this is after someone's had a really rapid labor and delivery, and then it seems like the placenta can take forever. But catch your breath, sit down, have a chat with the patient, all those different things. And your unblocked
1: patients will appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. They will say too, like, oh, something feels heavy in my vagina. And then you're like, oh, yeah, push a little bit. And they give you a little push, and out comes the placenta. Now, Mm -hmm. Duncan, placentas are a little more interesting when it comes to physiologic management because they kind of slide off. Yeah, more likely to have some heavy bleeding with those presentations. Yeah, so Duncan presentation, so that maternal side presenting at the introitus is also a risk factor for hemorrhage. Yes. So so just remember like how you're managing the placenta kind of matters. But if you think that somebody is at a risk for hemorrhage, you want to probably choose active management over physiologic management. Agreed. Agreed. So um, the, let's talk a little bit more about preparation, and then we'll go through some more of these postpartum hemorrhage steps. But you know, when you're in a labor situation and you know you've got a mom who's had seven babies or a mom who's had a temperature in labor... Or a mom who's maybe had some bleeding or is a little anemic. Like, what are we thinking about when we're talking about preparation?
0: Well, for one, I'm having a conversation with the nurses um, about who we want to be present at the birth. Um, am I even thinking about alerting my collaborator so that they can be readily available, know exactly how what their distance is from me, that sort of idea, and then having medications ready.
1: Yeah. I, one of the most recent changes that I love that's happened in the last few years is hemorrhage cards.
0: Yes. I also, I guess I should have mentioned, these are patients that I would very much like to have large bore IV access, um, for these patients in particular.
1: Yeah. Like, um, I know we, as midwives, we tend to not force the issue of, um, Of IV access. Or sometimes I'll say to my patients, like, I really just want to put like a little lock in. It doesn't have to be hooked up to anything. It's really for your safety. Um, But I do know there are midwives that would say like, well, gosh, they don't need IV access. But in these kinds of cases where we're anticipating maybe a hemorrhage event, it's good to have IV access. Absolutely. So we talked about the active versus physiologic management of placenta. We talked about some medications. what happens if our medications don't work? Well, definitely we want to think back to
0: those T's again and make sure that there's not some other cause than tone and so you're investigating for any lacerations, you're thinking about potentially were there any retained so taking a quick look at your placenta um, make sure nothing was left behind, thinking about all of those different things and then there's other ways that we can help the uterus to clamp down or not bleed so heavy and so maybe we're talking about um, bimanual compression. Um, That being something that as you're calling for help, because you've already noticed that the bleeding is heavy and you've got your collaborator on the way, do I need to do some bimanual compression? Do I need to do an investigation of
1: the uterus as well? Yeah. And bimanual compression is the easiest, cheapest right? Most effective thing that we can be doing.
0: And I think we need to make sure that you're assertive with it. I don't want to say aggressive, but you're not, this is not a gingerly pressing on the uterus kind of situation. You, you really need to be quite assertive in this type of situation.
1: So after bimanual compression, we move on to sort of tamponade kinds of techniques. And so the one that most people are probably most familiar with is use of Bakary balloon.
0: Right. Um, And actually, this is not something, again, knock on wood, that I've had to use myself, but definitely have available in my facility. And you know, the instructions are pretty straightforward. The nurses are usually quite skilled in helping you facilitate this placement.
1: And so a Bakary or any kind of um, tamponade balloon goes into the uterus, it gets blown up with saline usually somewhere between 300 and 500 ml of saline and it really provides tamponade against the endometrium right right and bakri is one commercially available there are others
0: there's even some that are kind of similar to a cook where it's got two balloons one in the vagina
1: and one in the uterus so there are different brands available um, what's another – like, I mean, I think – let's think low-resource. We don't have a Bakary or an Ebb available. Like, we could use a Foley.
0: Yeah, and even multiple Foley's to make up the volume similar to what one of those other, like, uterine
1: balloon systems would be. Right. And then – and I think low-resourced areas or areas that don't have that, we can simply pack the uterus. Right. Um, doesn't provide as great of – you know, a tamponading in terms of a surface, right? but definitely um, you can soak those um, Raytex sponges and provide some tamponade that way. And this would obviously be one of those situations where you would
0: want to have a really
1: good count of what you put into the uterus because we need to make sure we get it all out of the uterus eventually. Right. So the ACOG guideline does talk a lot about surgical intervention, which, you know, is not really in our scope. Absolutely. I would actually say even those other procedures that we just talked about with tamponade,
0: we can initiate some of those maneuvers, but you would definitely be doing that in collaboration
1: or co-management with your uh, collaborating partners. So what I really appreciate about ACOG practice guidelines is the levels of recommendations that they go through sort of in summary of their other guidelines. Yeah. It's refreshing
0: because so much of what we do has been based on anecdotal evidence and so forth. And so it's nice to see these are the things that we absolutely say are high evidence and we should definitely implement them. And then we go down with our lesser, lesser grades of recommendation. So let's review the A recommendations. Yeah. So A being those things that are based on really good and consistent scientific evidence.
1: So the first one here is that Every single facility needs to have guidelines for how we treat hemorrhage and that they should be, have availability of routine administration of uterotonics within those guidelines. Right. Um, and that we know that the, the next recommendation is, we just said, atony is right. the number one cause so that we know that those uterotonic agents are first line in treatment for any hemorrhage that's caused by atony.
0: Right. And they don't go, they don't tell us specifically which agent we need to use. They talk about that it is
1: by provider discretion and availability within the facility. So those are the only two A recommendations. Like, hey, you got to have a good guideline and you got to know which uterotonics that you're going to use in your facility.
0: So now let's talk about the level B recommendations. And those are
1: recommendations that are based on limited or inconsistent scientific evidence. Right. So the first thing on this list is, hey, if you recognize that your uterotonics aren't working, then you need to understand to escalate to other things. So using a tamponade device, et cetera.
0: Yes. And then they also go on to say that knowing that we can really reduce mortality, we should think about the use of TXA or transexamic acid in the the setting when our initial therapy has failed.
1: Right. And what I would say for midwives that, um, don't know a lot about TXA use that the woman trial came out in 2017. You can just go to PubMed, look up woman trial and TXA. Um, it's the 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 text is available, the full article. So pull that out, read it. I think it gives some really good information about why we should consider TXA, especially that one gram IV and making sure that our facilities have that available. Um, right. It's pretty easy administration IV, right? Um, the the last of this, the level B recommendations, really has to do with we need to understand that this is this can be a multidisciplinary team. Um, that we need to have a protocol for um, hemorrhage that has to do with those things like we talked about, like a hemorrhage card, and when necessary, having that massive transfusion protocol as well, right? So the level C recommendations are really um, things that we know that are based on consensus and expert opinion. Um, but again, those aren't things that we're thinking about as midwives routinely.
0: Right, right. I mean, I think they, again, it goes along with the idea that we should have this multidisciplinary or interprofessional team and a multifaceted approach, and that we really want to maintain hemodynamic stability. And that obviously makes sense. I mean, it's a good recommendation, but it's
1: based on expert opinion. And also it it highlights that less invasive things are better. And we know that as midwives because we are um, experts in watchful waiting. Right. And promoting physiology. Um, but then also um, the one of the things that's listed here that I find really interesting is there's um, key elements about postpartum hemorrhage that are listed here. So it's readiness. Um, so are we ready to respond? Um, recognition and prevention, a multidisciplinary response, and then a systems-based you know, QI um, for how we improve those things.
0: Yeah. One of the things that we didn't really mention here, but that I would want to make sure that our listeners know is available is the California collaborative on maternal um, morbidity and mortality. And I forget the letters, but it's, I think CCMQ or I, anyway, they have really well-developed protocols. So if you don't have those in place in your facility, I would Google those and search them out because they are really nice
1: evidence-based protocols. Um, So on that note, that collaborative is also who puts together this like phased approach to postpartum hemorrhage response. So it's like stage one, you know, we're doing all of the active management. We're using um, oxytocin stage two goes to other medications. Stage three goes to things like large bore access as well as tampon on devices, et cetera. So they do a really nice job of highlighting those things. Um, as we think about, okay, these are the stages that we need to consider. Yeah. The other place that I would go to
0: look for some of those bundles that have that staged approach as well is aim, which is a partner with ACOG and it's the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. And they have really well-developed protocols and bundles in place.
1: And for any midwives who are listening, who are maybe doing work in low resource areas, third world countries, missions work, etc., or working with, um, you know populations of people who birth in out of hospital settings. The World Health Organization's document um, is actually really it's a, a it's a, a long a long document with levels and levels and levels of recommendations. But they do have a one page summary that really um, highlights the strong evidence for postpartum hemorrhage management. Yes, um, worldwide.
0: Yes, and again, you know this is intended for those low resource settings, but applicable to so many
1: um, places within our high resource country. Right. So anything else, I I had one other thing I was thinking about when we were talking about physiologic management, and then maybe this will prompt you to think of anything else that midwives might want to think about. But when we're talking about physiologic birth of the placenta and what you can be doing while you're waiting, um, I have actually done repairs while I have waited for a placenta. Sure. So don't be afraid to think like, well, gosh, I want to get this placenta out because I really want to work on getting my repair done. The You can do your repair. Just make sure your cord is out of the way and, you know, work on your repair. And then that is one less thing that has to be done post, um, you know, post placental delivery. And that placental delivery should not interrupt with your repair. Like right. It should not um, ruin for lack of a better word, the repair you've just done.
0: Yeah, you know, at mine, it, as you were talking, one of the things I think we haven't chatted about is qualitative or quantitative. Sorry, quantitative blood loss versus estimated blood loss. And so, as part of hemorrhage protocols and policies, we're starting to see a lot more
1: implementation of this quantitative blood loss. And so knowing that policy in your area is really helpful. Yeah, and there's some really interesting research coming out about quantitative blood loss. And so um, we'll, we'll just have to see sort of what happens over the next few years as we know more and more about that QBL.
0: Yeah, I, I think certainly academically um, it makes total sense to me, but the
1: implementation of it isn't always as smooth. Right, and whether or not it really does change the outcome um of what we know about hemorrhage yeah absolutely does it or does that just delay us getting to the or if we need to go to the or delay other interventions like i think again it's one of those things that we need some more research about
0: well and i think there's implications for our staff and what they're doing at delivery and are they doing busy work of weighing different
1: um you know sponges and pads and that sort of thing versus caring for the patient. Right. Um, you know, we know that fast intervention with hemorrhage generally is what gets us the result we want.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this was really helpful for me to review and really think about those interventions that we do be ready for the next delivery that I attend. Um, anything that you want to add real quick at the end?
1: No, I just think, um, Just like with shoulder dystocia, you know, when you're doing anticipatory things with your patient during second stage, you know, you're always thinking about what's next. So, you know, I'm always looking at my nurses thinking like, gosh, do I need to make sure that they're ready for a shoulder? Do I need a stool? Do I need extra hands? Same thing with hemorrhage. Like, what do I want to be ready? Um, I'm one of those midwives who believes in, like, warding off evil spirits. Yes. <clears throat> so I'll say to the nurses, like, hey, can you just put the hemorrhage cart outside my door? Um, because maybe if it's outside my door, it will keep something from happening. And that seems silly, but, you know, all of us have our things.
0: We absolutely do. So this was really, really helpful. Um, I'm excited the that- we have provided this information and that all of us will be a little bit more
1: prepared the next time we go into our birth. Absolutely. So thanks so much for joining us. Take care.